Okay, ready to go? Let's rock and roll. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Kremlin File. And we're welcoming today Alina Polyakova. She is the president and CEO of the Center for European Policy Analysis, CIPA, uh, as well as adjunct professor of European Studies at the John Hopkins uh, University School of Advanced International Studies. And today we're focusing on the transatlantic relationship and also, of course, the Russian war okay, on Ukraine. Hello, Alina. Hello, hello. Thanks for Hi, having hello. me. Hi, hello. Alina, my first question to you okay, today is that I look through, I, I ran across one of your Twitter okay, threads, and it was really interesting because it was on some observations that you made when you came back from Europe. Okay. And I'd like you to tell us about the differences uh, between, let's say, how the war is perceived, you know, in Europe and maybe some of the changes and what, you know, how about the American side, you know, having been on both sides of the Atlantic? Uh, thanks so much for that question, Monique. I mean, I was, you know, really struck uh, by how close the war feels in Europe. And of course, the obvious reason for that is that there are millions and millions of Ukrainians who are pouring into Europe um, as refugees as a result of this incredibly brutal war that uh, Russia has launched in Ukraine. And so there were Ukrainian flags everywhere. Uh, people were hosting or even driving to the border. I heard about um, in, in Poland to pick up people, just, you know, volunteering. Mm. So, and, and in some way, there's, I realized that we're all Ukrainians now. But in a way that is very <laughs> real to a lot of Europeans because they often have roots or they have friends who have roots um, or they know people from the region. Yeah. Because, of course, you know, Ukrainians have been working um, in all kinds of service industries for a long time in Europe, like especially in Italy and France mm -hmm. and countries that need yeah. a shortage of, this, yeah. of these kinds of workers. And so it just feels so much closer and does in the United States, where I think here still for the most smart. But most part, um, most Americans, I think, experience kind of in a visceral way the effects of the war primarily through concerns about rising energy costs and how much is it going to cost to fill up your tank, right? And this is what your President yeah. Biden talked a yeah. lot about because you know the U.S. administration understands that the pocketbook is the main concern of the American voter, but. That really wasn't part of the conversation in European countries. Not to say I was in the UK, which, you know, is still not as affected. Obviously, the further west you go from Ukraine, the, the fewer refugees. But yeah. even there, um, it felt very, very real. Um, and also because, you know, the UK has this reputation for being the so-called, you know, London grad, right? Uh, the joke there, that there's been mm -hmm. so much Russian mm -hmm. money that has ended up in London, that has ended up in the UK in properties. You hear Russian all over the place in London as well. Um, and I think people became yeah. much more aware um, of that this is not like an innocent, benign thing, that the people who have spent so much money, invested so much, you know, are supporters of the regime in one way or another because you don't get that kind of wealth otherwise. And so people have become very, very aware of how geopolitics has affected their day-to-day -day lives in, in, in a real way. And I think the other thing is that, yeah. you know, 
I, I found that the perspective, and again, most of my time was spent in the UK in this particular trip, uh, was really much more, I think, realistic about what to expect. Uh, meaning, you know, I talked to a lot of people in the policy world and the approach was much more assertive. You know, people feel the pressure mm. to be assertive in their response. And one thing that I heard someone say that I thought mm. was really profound was, you know, it's great that we have the Biden administration, uh, which is a quote unquote normal administration compared yeah. to the last one. But yes, yes. But yes. in a way, the U.S. is acting like a European country is what this one person I talked to said. I think what he meant, what oh, he meant by that was interesting. Um, everyone's being very cooperative and polite and diplomacy is back in action. Those are good things. But maybe that's not really the role of the U.S., in the alliance with Europe. Because the role of the US is kind of to be out there and be more pushy and push Europeans in the right direction who will eventually slowly follow. Yeah. But we haven't been serving that role, <laughs> um, uh, according to some of the people I talked to, because they want us to be kind of the aggressive types. They expect that from us, but we've been a bit more polite, <laughs> so to say, in how we're responding yeah, to Russia. Yeah. So those are some of the things I noticed um, through, from this trip. And frankly, I was really surprised. Like I just put some stuff on Twitter, like you do sometimes. And I was surprised that this resonated with people. I was like, wow, you know, there are such profound differences across the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. And it's interesting because yeah. you yeah. have, you know, uh, you said how America is usually the pushy one. And we have seen Biden basically hand the reins over to Europe. And, you know, hours after Putin launched his brutal assault on Ukraine, you saw it was Europeans who were the first one to announce sanctions. And like with every step, it seems to be Europeans are taking the lead. I'm sure Biden might be working behind the scenes, you know, building coalitions, but it feels like he's given Europe that primary, like upfront role with it. Well, I will say that behind the scenes on the diplomatic side, um, the U.S. Mm. is playing mm. a very key leadership role okay. Be because, you know, if we look back at like, sanctions policy in 2014, it was really hard to get Europeans on board. Mm -hmm. You know, that we know yeah. Europe's problem, which is huge dependency on Russian gas and oil. And even now we're seeing that emerge. Mm -hmm. uh, but getting the Europeans to be on mm -hmm. board with the sanctions package that we were planning, remember at the beginning of this, we said, you know, Putin, if you invade, the mm -hmm. sanctions will be so crippling. You don't want to do that because we're trying to use that as a deterrent. Yeah. So we had negotiated the sanctions deal with the Europeans in advance. That whole process, uh, I think, was very painful because many in Europe, of course, didn't believe the U.S. intelligence that uh, Russia would invade. And so getting like the Europeans on board with the sanctions that were then launched that was very much U.S. leadership. But I think you're right that now we have seen Europe actually mm -hmm. get a bit more assertive, at least on the sanctions side, though not as assertive as they could or should be, uh, given how directly they're impacted. Um, and the administration, I think, rightfully also sees that Europe in some ways on the, on the economic side has a lot more leverage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just in London, shutting down yeah. London grad, yeah. that's, you know, leverage enough. 
Alina, um, knowing the level of yeah, uh, the, yeah. the Russian economic and political capture in EU, are you happy with the level of unity um, that we've seen? And are you also happy with the sanctions package? Do you think there's more that can be done to make them more effective? Well, look, I, I have some mixed feelings about the sanctions. One, um, certainly in some ways, um, there were more than I would have initially expected. Um, it's also uh, unprecedented to have this level of sanctions on financial institutions of a country as large as Russia, a country that is as globally interconnected um, as Russia. You know, we've only done this level of sanctions on Iran, basically, or North Korea, maybe. Uh, very different kinds yeah. of cases. Um, the Russian economy is certainly not, um, you know, a huge player on the world stage, but it's not insignificant either. Um, it's not North Korea. Um, it's also a nuclear superpower, right? So a lot of things we've done um, are going to have long-term crippling effects and they're already having effects um, on Russians in Russia directly. Um, but there's a but there, of course. <laughs> um, obviously it's not changing <laughs> Russia's military behavior. So sanctions have failed as a deterrent mm which is how we initially thought the sanctions policy was going to go. And now they're failing to change okay. behavior. And what that tells me is that it's just not enough. If this is going to be our primary tool that we think we can use to punish Russia and make them change their ways, well, you know, three weeks into the invasion, it's not working. And so what that tells me is that... Okay, what more would you do, Alina? Well, look, I mean, I yeah. think it's true that the Europeans have absolutely have to take the pain on the energy side. I mean, that is Russia's pocketbook. Yeah. And we're in this absurd situation where Europe is paying billions for Russian gas that is flowing, guess yeah. where, directly through Ukraine. Yeah. So there's an active war being fought on the very ter territory through which your energy flows are going through. And look, I understand you can't just switch from gas to renewables overnight. I get it. And I do think Europe is very aware of that. Even countries like Germany have done a huge turnaround um, in trying to reduce their dependence. Mm -hmm. and it's not going to happen overnight. But I think given the severity of the situation, suspend gas imports. From Russia. I'm not saying forever, okay? Because I know Europe will have a hard time surviving on that in the short or medium term. But right now, it's just it would hit them so hard and so fast. Yeah. It would really hurt. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yes, I think there's a lot yeah. more we can do. Yeah. Um, and on the U.S. side, you know, we just, we don't have as much economic leverage, but we do have leverage over because we just don't have a deep economic relationship with Russia. You know, our trade with Russia is very minimal. Um, and we've already said we're not going to import any more oil from Russia. So we're kind of done with that, you know. Um, but, you know, for yeah. a long time, since we've had sanctions on Russian individuals or companies or what have you, they've just found ways to get around those quite easily. Unfortunately, yes, absolutely. Um, do you yeah. see any discussions yeah. of uh, potentially cutting off oil supplies to Europe? Like, are they considering as the images are getting, I mean, uh, so hard to look at? I mean, what we're seeing happen, like, you know, Russia's yeah. discussing cleansing of cities that they are surrounding. Well, 
I mean, are is it hitting, yeah. you know, like Germany yeah. and other countries who are that dependent? Like maybe. If anything, Germany. Yeah. Because I know that Italy, for example, is already taking steps in terms of oil. They're going to be looking at other countries. And I know they're taking a very, you know, uh, proactive. Uh, Draghi talked about it uh, not too long ago. Gas is a little more difficult, but I know that they're working on the LNG that's going to be coming you know, from the States and other things. But I don't know, Alina, do you know anything? Yeah, you know, on countries? the oil side, yes, that's a very active conversation that's happening right now. There might be a resolution to that or some announcements on that, I think, very shortly mm. because President Biden is heading to Europe. And I think they want to make some announcements um, on sanctions. Um, and I'm hoping it's going to be this. I'm okay. hoping it's going to be the oil. But oil is not really the big okay. issue is the gas. Okay. You no, know, and the on gas. the gas, I haven't seen yeah. that on the table. And what's interesting is even in countries like Germany, yeah. which of course has traditionally been against touching energy at all, mm-hmm. Russian energy imports, you know, public opinion is moving very, very quickly in in the direction yes. of saying no. But the policy isn't there yet. Um, because of course, German industry, like the yeah. beating heart of Germany is gonna be hit. Yeah, yeah, they don't wanna take the hit. No. They just don't wanna take the right. hit, let's be honest. I mean, that's, exactly. I think that's the crux of it, right? That's the crux of it. Like I know here, that's the pushback that, that Draghi is getting from industries. And, uh, you know, that rely on that kind of thing. Yeah. Although, I mean, he's still going through with it. But I'm, I'm sure that in Germany where their volumes are, are just, you know, uh, it's, it's the heart, yeah. the motor, yeah. the economic motor in Europe. One of them. France is up there, but France is energy, yeah. energy sufficient, you know, uh, self-sufficient. So it doesn't have these But I've heard in Germany, thing. just very quickly on the energy issue, you know, Yes, they made an announcement yeah. they're going to build two more, you know, uh, LNG terminals to get liquefied natural gas from countries mm-hmm. like the United States and elsewhere. But I mean, you can't build those overnight. That's no. going to take a while. These take a while to build. So, no. but I think the one thing that yeah. Germany has done that's gotten itself into this ridiculous energy trap is they've phased out nuclear power, which France has not, to yeah. your point. Yeah. Um, and they are on an accelerated path to phase out coal. Right. So energy has to come from somewhere. I think Germany is in a place now where they have to reconsider their nuclear policy when it comes to energy. Because guess yeah. what? Yeah. They're still importing nuclear mm-hmm. energy from the Czech Republic. You know, so yes, in Germany, we're not going to have a nuclear power plant. So we're just across the border. <laughs> we'll take it. Just across the border. They're right there. So it won't make it. <laughs> we're not going right. to be yeah, affected no. if something happens. Right. Yeah. I mean, they they shut down three of them. They had six. They shut down three, and I think they were going to shut down another two or something. Uh, you're right. They should be rethinking that. Um, let's move on to defense for a moment, okay? And I wanted to ask you, um, what, let's say, in what areas and ways can we continue to aid Ukraine in terms of its defense? Um, like, how about also, how do we protect the delivery corridors, you know, for those, you know, for those materials that are needed for Ukrainian defense? Well, I mean, this is this is the big issue, of course, because I said, you know, sanctions are our main policy. They're not working. But there's also the security assistance side, the military support. That's the other side of this. And, you know, here, I think we have seen some very positive moves from uh, European countries, from the United States to provide 
direct military assistance at an incredibly rapid pace. But there's always a but. <laughs> um, it's still not enough because you know you Ukrainians uh, are not able to defend themselves from Russian uh, missile attacks, which is what the Russians are using now primarily to destroy Ukrainian mm-hmm. civilian infrastructures. And like, to be clear, they are explicitly targeting civilian infrastructure purposely because they're trying to use civilians as hostages to force Ukraine to surrender. It's not working so far, um, but it's incredibly dangerous. I mean, they're just leveling whole cities at this point. Um, and the Ukrainians can't do very much about them. They're intercepting as many as they can, but you know they have uh, these anti-tank um, kind of, uh, I think, shoulder-held uh, systems. Um, they have yeah. other kind of quick-to-use shoulder-held systems, but they're short-range or medium-range. So what they need is more of the mm-hmm, medium mm-hmm. and long-range capabilities. Um, and there's different ways of doing that. You know, it doesn't mean you have to have warplanes in Ukraine. Because that's been on uh, uh, the mm-hmm. discussion table and it's kind of stalled. Uh, yeah. But what about missile systems? You know, S four. You know, there's been some rumor out there that the Turks might give their S four hundreds, which are Russian made systems, Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. I don't. I think this might be overreported because I don't see much movement there. Uh, but the U.S. obviously has mm. these kinds of missile systems that they could easily provide to the Ukrainians. Because what we're seeing now is Russia targeting exactly what you said, the supply routes. So yes, we're giving them all this, all these weapons, but increasingly it's going to be very difficult to get them into Ukraine. You know, and so I think we're hitting this question again on the on the cost benefit analysis, right? It's like for Europe, what's going to cost you more in the long term to continue to house maybe over ten, maybe even twenty million refugees? I mean, Ukraine's a country over forty five million. As long as this war goes on, we're going to have more and more people. The costs of that are huge. Um, or the cost of taking the pain for the for cutting off gas. Right? What's going to cost mm-hmm. you more right now? Mm-hmm. And I think this is the same question with security assistance. You know, What's going to cost us more? Supplying weapons that are going to get bombed out by Russian missiles? Um, or taking the mm-hmm. risk of saying, we're going to secure these civilian corridors because they're because remember, you know, weapons are going in and the same roads as civilians are coming out. So when Russians are bombing supply routes, they're also bombing civilian yeah. corridors, humanitarian corridors. Yeah. And I think yeah. we haven't been really willing uh, to take that extra step because we think if we do anything that's going to enforce some sort of control over the air um, in Ukraine, that's not by Ukrainians, it's direct confrontation mm-hmm. on Russia. You know, my response to that is, well, Putin has every reason to say that we're already in a direct confrontation. Because, yeah. I mean, who's, yeah. what weapons are shooting down these planes? Who trained the Ukrainians on these weapons? Yeah. Yep. No, it's mm-hmm. 100%. 100%. And I mean, and you see mm-hmm. Russia saying the mm-hmm. same exact thing. You know, it's not... We don't have to imagine how they would feel because they are threatening and saying that we are directly participating in these, you know, yeah. uh, attacks and and uh, as Russia well, sure. puts it in their gaslighting sociopathic ways that we're supporting no. Nazis, which is a complete God. lie. Um, we saw no. when no. Putin launched his uh, war on Ukraine, 
we immediately at the beginning we saw the transatlantic alliance kind of shaky and you know and it wasn't clear how everything was going to fall into place once putin ordered the first strikes we saw the unity and it was such strong unity probably not seen since post world war 2 are you worried that as this war continues to drag on that there will be you know this unity will start kind of like fraying and you're going to see more weaknesses between alliance members or do you think as long as you know we continue to see the refugee crisis and the uh Putin you know raising the stakes inside of Ukraine and targeting civilians and leveling cities that the unity will only grow and you know that we will be stronger as a block you know it's so hard to predict right because certainly now public opinion in Europe has been incredibly positive towards Ukraine. You know, um people are opening their homes to host people. Um there's Ukrainian solidarity everywhere. I mean, I get a little annoyed with it because I'm like, okay, well that's great you can let us build these Ukrainian colors and um hold, you know, peace concerts. Yeah. Really nice. But, you know, give us, give us give a us tank. Us, you know? <laughs> Give us a tank. Give us weapons. I like the bunting. Give us. It's like it's kind of like thoughts and prayers when we need weapons. You know. Um, But okay, fine. You know, if that's what gets people emotionally attached, I'm all for it. Uh, Because Ukrainians need global solidarity and support uh, from just you know people, not just governments. Um, You know, I've been a little skeptical um, that this will last for. A very long time because I think, unfortunately, um, you know, we have become one desensitized to these conflicts. You know, we just had Afghanistan. Before that, we had Aleppo, and then people mm. just moved on. Mm. You know, and so my fear is that there will come a moment when this is just this is just a new reality, and we're all kind of adapted that there's a raging war in Ukraine that may go on for years and may have hundreds of thousands of casualties and millions of refugees. And we just deal with it without actually addressing the core of the problem, which by the way, was primarily the response with Syria. Yeah. You know, um, Mm -hmm. Europe kind of saw the refugee crisis in 2015 from refugees from Syria as somehow disconnected from the war that was driving them to Europe. So it was always like, oh, the refugees are the problem. It's like, no, uh, the Syrian regime is the problem. <laughs> you know, so this kind of strange disconnect between the the source of the problem and the outcome of the problem. I'm afraid that this is where things are going to go. Um, I hope I'm wrong about that. And the reason I, I might be wrong about that is because of what you said, that, you know, Putin has been so brutal. And mm-hmm. I mean, clearly for Europeans, this is much more close to home than anything that's happened in Syria. I mean, yeah. there's obviously a cultural affinity with the yeah. Ukrainians as a religious affinity yeah, as well. I mean, to say something obvious, I mean, Europe is largely white still and Ukrainians are largely white. And so these are like people that are literally your neighbors. That's how you, you know, many in Europe see yeah. them. Um, so there is a qualitative difference there for better or for worse, frankly. You know, I wish there weren't these double standards um, around Muslims and people of color. But unfortunately, there are. And I think that explains 
a big reason for why we're seeing a much more open heart, open arms approach to Ukrainians. How long will that last? Um, I think it's very hard to say, but I think as long as Putin's brutality remains what it is, and that I don't see changing. No. Because we've seen how brutal this regime is and how brutal it has yeah. been in the past. Mm. That may actually lead to uh, longer solidarity and, and longer unity than we may see in, in the context of another conflict. Um, so in a way, you know, obviously Putin has made a horrible, horrible strategic mistake here. Um, mm-hmm. That if he goes, keeps going on this path of destruction, I think it's not going to win him any favors, and it's going to just keep keep no. you know, keep people more engaged with the conflict because the images you see they just become more and more horrifying. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and people see it, Alina. Yeah. People see it. I I know that here, for example, there are um, just a little something. Just be, when we get on to the next thing, that I wanted to sort of hook up with what you were saying about the source, okay, of of the conflict itself and what we should do. But just as a little aside, you know, here they try to paint uh, the. There's a lot of disinformation and. Um, they sort of want to push the narratives that, uh, you know, Ukraine brought this on themselves, NATO and all of this bullshit, right, that we keep hearing all the time. But I've seen, even with people, normal people, they're more than happy to help. They're actually, you know, very proactive and they understand, okay, they simply understand what this war is all about. Even if, you know, on the media, like, uh, look, I'm looking at something here right now. They've got uh, Dugan on, on oh, Raitre, okay, which is absolutely, yeah, that's like, I, I'm, I'm just really angry right now, but let's, let's skip over that because I know uh, we have better things to talk about than that aspect. No, and, anyway, and, and, you know, um, when we- and people keep saying, I think Putin miscalculated and I agree a hundred percent. I also have to add though, that I think, I mean, I personally can say I'm as in much shock as Putin that people actually responded because he has yeah. gone away with 20 years of atrocities with everything, everything. Yeah. chemical weapons on children, uh, leveling cities in Grozny, uh, assassinations with chemical weapons on foreign soil, assassination squads across yeah. Europe, every single election interference. I mean, I am beyond shocked, you know, to see that. Like, I didn't think in my lifetime, honestly, you know, I would see this kind of pushback and like, you know, Within just three mm-hmm. weeks, yachts being seized every day. I wake up and I'm like, oh, another yacht being seized. <laughs> another yeah, one. And so I yeah, think it's one. also that combination. We finally had enough. And you see what happens when the West unites for a good yeah. cause, how yeah. effective yeah. that is. And this is something I think I'm hoping, you know, our alliance is going forward, you know, remember, because this is, you know, it's just a perfect example of, how all the mechanisms got put in, were in place and just got, you know, immediately enacted. And you see already something, not a lot, but something happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also I'm hearing too, which is really quite disturbing, Alina. I don't know what you think of this, but uh, I hear like on one side that uh, Ukraine should be compromising, right, with Putin. That That thing has come out. And then, no, uh, to find a way so that you don't piss him off too much kind of thing. 
uh, a lot of Ukrainians, and rightly so, and this is my thing, is that, you know, they shouldn't be conceding, right? And this is what, what's your opinion on this? Well, honestly, um, I think, one, the Russians underestimated uh, Ukrainians' desire to defend their homeland. That was probably the biggest strategic error. And we know the reason for that, which is, in a way, their own propaganda undermined their analysis, which is, if you think that Ukraine doesn't exist as a country, then why bother studying it? You know? And so we haven't, there has been little just understanding of Ukrainian society. And I truly believe that they thought that at least in the Russian-speaking, primarily Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine, um, they would have sympathy. But what they were met with was just like hard resistance. And so I say that because if, I think that that has hardened people so much and the kind of casualties and brutality and, and the losses the Ukrainians have experienced has hardened them against any any inch of compromise. And I say that because that's what I hear from Ukrainians on a daily basis. You know, people who sure. just left uh, Mariupol, uh, the southeastern mm. city that's been completely leveled at this point. Uh, people there mm. are dying from starvation, um, dehydration, you know, crazy stuff that sh- in a country like Ukraine is truly unimaginable. I mean, it's a modern country. Um, you know, people who have just escaped have been listening to their comments and their interviews. Um, and they get this question sometimes, well, do you think that's, that Mariupol should surrender? They refuse to surrender. And the answer is always absolutely not. No one there that I know, speaking as some, one of these interviewees, will yeah. ever surrender because people are so angry, understandably. And at this point, they're, they'd rather die mm-hmm. than give an inch. So if the Ukrainian government um, you know, comes up with some deal, which I don't think they will, because the Russians don't want to negotiate. They just want to put out these maximalist demands and ultimatums and have them be agreed to. You know, but if for some reason there's some sort of deal um, that Ukrainian society doesn't agree with, the, the Ukrainian government knows they, they can't do it because they'll be overthrown. That's just the end of it. Yeah, yeah. And then too, Alina, how can you trust the Russians again? You know, like tonight I was listening to Peskov, the Christian Amanpour's uh, interview, and I just sat there and I said, how can we trust them? You know, how can I mean, we ever have issue, trusted them? Right, Olga? <laughs> no, I know. I know. Well, there were, I don't even think it was trust. I think it was yeah. just money or business or whatever no, you want anything, I mean, with Russia, but, it's a very, you know, you know, known thing. Whatever they deny is the truth. Whatever they confirm is <laughs> Any as agreement they, they say, make is broken like, okay. unless, you know, it serves their advantage. I mean, with Russia, it's, you know, this is how they've conducted business yeah. for decades, you know? Yeah. And even in Soviet yeah. days, although yeah. I have to say the Soviet days, as horrific as the leadership was, I don't think they were this, like, not unstable, but just ready. Like, there were lines of communications and there were lines that were not crossed. Like even like we've spoken to CIA agents who operated mm-hmm. in the Soviet Union. Yeah. And, you know, and they said that like, you know, the KGB agents, their job was to follow us, but they knew not to cross any lines. And those is kind of like almost yeah. like, you know, kind of like this 
honor between the two. You do your job, I do my job, that's it. And whereas with Putin's people, I mean, they're reckless and just, they're, you know, you see that they will cross all lines, you know? I mean, that's exactly right. And um, of course, they can't be trusted in any of these negotiations. Um, I think the Ukrainians are pursuing them because, I mean, they're being killed. Um, Yeah, they need to, sure. And I think the Ukrainians are hoping that um, as the Russians see that their plans aren't working out, you know, there are plans to take over all of Ukraine in like a week (laughs) was the original plan. That's not happening. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't Mm -hmm. really know the exact losses, but some of the numbers reported are huge on the Russian side. Can't verify those, but I trust the independent reporters more than trust the Russian government, obviously. (laughs) You know, so... I think the Ukrainians are hoping that the Russians will, there's this kind of a a pain threshold for them too. And both sides are playing that game now. The Russians are saying, well, your pain threshold is if we're going to kill all the civilians in Mariupol and then we're going to take this down and then we're going to keep, keep killing in in a sense. Um, And at some point you'll capitulate because your losses will be so huge. So that's kind of the, the stalemate that we find ourselves in right now, that both sides you know, are thinking that yeah. there's a pain threshold the other one just hasn't reached yet, and it will at some point. And look, I mean, that may be the case. You know, the, frankly, though, I think the way the Russian op- military operation is going has been a disaster <laughs> from their perspective. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, given that Russia has the second largest army <laughs> military in the world. On paper. On paper. <laughs> on paper. But now we know it's on paper. Was that? Yeah. Well, I yeah. think what we've learned is just how deep corruption yeah. Yeah. has truly penetrated just Russian yeah. capacities and capabilities. You know, um, I don't know if I've told this joke to you both before, but uh, if I haven't, I'll, I'll tell it to the <laughs> listeners. You know, um, you I heard this joke the other day uh, when the war first began. Uh, you know, that Putin gives the order to invade Ukraine and Gerasimov. Uh, uh, the kind of the equivalent of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the U.S. and the Russian side uh, meets with the Defense Minister Shoigu, and Shoigu says to him, "Well, but I already sold half the fuel." <laughs> um, and Gerasimov says, "Well, I already sold half the fuel." But we're like, oh, you know, but that joke I think just is so. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's what just, we're seeing. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's perfect. That's what we're seeing. Yeah, my mom, my mom has um now taken to calling uh this whole situation the Wizard of Oz because she's like Putin is like yeah you know here everybody was like so shook by the biggest one of the biggest militaries in the world and you know and now that you see them in theater because this is I don't remember I think since Afghanistan like Russia launching this type of invasion because they've always taken pieces and they've always you know. Like, mm-hmm. so here you have them attempting to take a whole country and you see the military falling apart. And it's like, my mom is like, look, from all the propaganda and the corruption and everything, you know, you see how the, like everyone just was, yeah. had this complete different image and you have American generals yeah. who are like sitting on CNN and like, what, this is the military and she's, they can't believe yeah, it. And yeah. she's like, and that's what it yeah. feels like the wizard of Oz, where you yeah. pull the cor- uh, curtain and you see a little shrimp with a microphone. Just you know, barking. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? This is like the propaganda state. You know what I mean? It's sort of like they started building a propaganda army 
in, in a certain way, but I love that all. No, I love that. <laughs> and we're seeing it on the battlefield. I mean, and it's, and it's just typical. Yeah. It's with the corruption. It's a typical thing in Russia because even like I've seen pictures, like, you know, friends send me pictures of a road, beautiful road, you know, that someone got millions of dollars of contract, but then there's the tree. They didn't take the tree out. So the road comes to an end. I mean, and this is just, it goes to the corruption aspect that, you know, mm. Putin has created this state where everybody's just robbing it and depleting, you know, the normal resources that are needed. That's right. That's exactly right. So the state reflects, right? The the kind of leadership it has. Yeah. That's basically Yeah, it. and I yeah, mean, and, and what runs is, is the propaganda and brainwashing. You know, there's nothing behind, yeah. you know, that propaganda, yeah. you remove the propaganda and brainwashing, I think, you know, a lot more and people get deep. De, uh, de- yeah, and, well, I think it even goes maybe even one step deeper, you know, because there's because of the the very dysfunctional kind of system of control where Putin really holds all the mm-hmm. cards in Russia. You know, the risk of going against him is so high or disappointing him is so high. I mean, we're kind of back to like Stalinist era, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Putin that, you know, his own generals probably had to impress him. And, you know, all these videos we've seen over the years that Putin likes to show, you know, his generals show to him of these, like, you know, nuclear-armed hypersonic missiles and all these boutique uh, technologies that they have. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's been probably taken up by his own general's desire to please him by overstating their capacities and capabilities. And, yeah, they, they do have some boutique capabilities, but... What we are noticing is that they're not willing to use them here, uh, either because they're not ready or because they yeah. only have a couple of them. <laughs> Maybe two or three, exactly. No. <laughs> That's um, what I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, um, I, people keep asking me constantly, like, with this nuclear threat, and I said, I mean, I don't want to uh, test it by any means, but I'm like, at the rate how everything else is corrupt, like Putin will press the button and the missile will go back into Siberia because it's just everything <laughs> is so corrupt. And and just even yeah. during COVID, we saw a total collapse of, you know, the hospital system and the pictures coming out of the hospitals. These hospitals in Moscow and St. Petersburg looked like they were like just bombed in World War II and never fixed after that and you saw rust and holes in walls and i'm like my god like you know how how do people like just not no investment in in, nothing nothing no no. investment in infrastructure no the investment is in yachts (laughs) yachts and and yeah they invested in yachts um that's what they did yeah uh my question for you we keep hearing people um and this actually we could cut out if if but I thought of it instead of the one I had. We okay, keep go. um hearing, you know, everyone saying that we have to get information back inside of Russia. You are an information mm. expert. What do you think the effect would that with that would be from that? Because I've seen like BBC is beginning, you know, to go back to old Soviet Cold War tactics of trying to get information in using Tor and um um radio uh, mm-hmm. uh, what is it called radio wave frequency yeah and we see you know other like methods being done and now with technology we see hacking yesterday KP the Russian media outlet um someone hacked it allegedly and you know posted the real numbers close to ten thousand American so I mean yes, Russian right. Russian soldiers yeah. dead and then we also saw um you know. VK got hacked and they posted like 
uh, over to over 20, uh, 12 million users, um, the truth of what was happening, that civilian infrastructure in Ukraine was um, the target and the real losses being taken on the Russian side. Do you think that will have an effect, all these methods? And do you think this is an area we should pursue of getting information back inside of Russia so the Russians see what is happening? I think this is such a interesting and also difficult question because we've, we've actually struggled with this question for a long time and before the war started. Mm-hmm. I think the challenge mm-hmm. now, of course, is that the Russian government has de facto shut down all Western social media and whatever they haven't shut down is coming. Um, so, you know, there's an iron curtain over Russia these days. Um, and I think, you know, we want to look back to the experience of the Cold War where the West did successfully get truthful information that was trusted uh, by the Soviet citizens at the time, you know, BBC Russian service, uh, radio, Sobodanaz uh, radio, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, RFERL radio, uh, Freedom yep. Radio, Radio Liberty, um, all these kinds of sources were trusted more <laughs> at a certain point than the Russian government sources. But I think we're in a very different reality now where uh, the scary thing is that a lot of Russians do trust the government sources. Um, you know, I don't, I always say that we can't trust opinion polls, but we, you know, in authoritarian states, but those opinion polls are probably a measure of something. If, yeah. uh, you know, over 80% of Russians support uh, the government's uh, operation, so-called operation in Ukraine, right. what they call it. Um, maybe it's below that, but it has to be the majority, I would think. Um, and so the question is, can we really reach these people who've been brainwashed for 20 years um, and who don't believe their own relatives yeah. in Ukraine? Because, you know, it's yeah, such we a hear that. two countries are so interconnected. And you hear these stories so often that, that people have relatives, you know, close relatives calling them from Ukraine, from bomb shelters, and they don't believe that this is what's happening. And they don't believe the images when they do see them because they think it's all CGI or something, AI, mm. whatever. It's yeah, all, yeah. it's fake, it's fake, deep fakes, right? Uh, <laughs> of course they're not because that technology is actually not that sophisticated. No. Um, you know, my own family, I know there's been discussions about this, right? Wow. Uh, my parents are very close friends. Um, I remember from Kiev and my mom says, I know these streets or recognize these streets and her close friends from Russia and they say, um, who live in the US, by the way, um, who say, oh, well, the things you can do with technology these days, who knows? You know, so people just yeah, it's that me. who knows. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I do think there are things we can do and that we should do. Um, you know, one, um, I'm very skeptical that the Cold War model will work because I don't think Western news outlets have the same level of trust that they used to during the Soviet period. Um, so it's great that BBC is extending its uh, Russia service again, but to what effect? Um, you know, I think the other thing that I would I would note, and uh, we're, we're starting to have conversations about this, you know, over the last weeks, there have been hundreds of thousands, I think, of Russians that have left Russia mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they don't want to live in this regime, they're part of this regime. Some portion of that, a significant one, are journalists. And thinkers and writers and commentators, all these people who are probably going to get thrown in jail for their yeah. work. Yeah. And 
they're scattered all over the world now, like wherever they can find some couple of months on a visa or something like this. But these are also the people who are still connected to Russian society, who still have networks there, who have Telegram channels and like who are many of them are prominent known entities from like uh, the Russian independent uh, team Mm -hmm. that was shut down. Um, People know them. And but now they can't do their work. So I think one of the things we can do is to identify these people, support them so they can still Mm -hmm. You know, message, provide information to the people that know them, that follow them, that trust them. Again, is that going to reach like the brainwashed half of Russian society? Mm-hmm. Well, no, but I don't think they ever watched George in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. interesting. Speaking yeah. of Dorsch, the founder of Dorsch, and I was beyond shocked, um, she wrote, not that she wrote, but she wrote an open letter on um appealing to Margarita Simonyan and um and uh what's her name Zaharova um you know talking about Ukrainian mothers are burying their little kids in little caskets yeah. and surprised I mean it mm. was a very touching letter she just fled Russia what the shocking part is that Novaya Gazeta published it and they had it as the front news you know their uh, their headline like their, um, yeah. you know, exclaimer, disclaimer says we had to change all the headlines to remove the word war and it's a special operation. But interestingly, they still, you know, kind yeah, of work out. around and they published this open letter and this open letter was ex- extremely, you know, detailed yeah. of what was happening in Ukraine. And I was like, wow, this this is definitely something, you know, interesting. Yeah. How many yeah. people in Nova Gazeta will reach? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. That's exactly. We right. don't know. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, and thank you, Alina, so much for coming on. And you know, and thank you for all the work you are doing and what SIPA is doing. And please, everyone, check out SIPA's website. We will have it on our episode because That's you have right. some of the best analysis and writing on it's covering true. everything happening in Ukraine, Russia, Europe, yep. U.S. Thank everything. you, Alina. Thank you. Thank you both. It was a real pleasure, truly. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, kremlinfile.com. This is a Bunker Crew Media production hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Camara, with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant DeSimone, Ben, Brett, and Jordi Micellis of Midas Media, with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarra. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts. That way we oh, can. I love, we I love can... the podcast. Oh, and thank, thank you for you. everything you're doing to try to inform people about what's actually going on. And um, you know, we, we just need more efforts like this. So um, thanks for everything you're doing, and I'm so happy that. We can be part of it. Um, me personally, but also SIPA as an institution. <laughs> yes. Um, so thank you so much for having me. It's so funny because when we started it and I was doing interviews, it was like so unintentional, but it's like, all right, okay. Edward Lucas, List. Ben Hodges, this one, that one. And I'm like, oh my God, they're all, I today, Olga. I'm like, I they're, said, they're all SIPA. <laughs>